Thank you. I'm Patty. I'm an alcoholic. Grateful to be sober. I'm grateful to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank Nancy and the committee for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to participate in my recovery. I've really had a good time right up until this minute. Um, (laughs) Glad to see Carl's with us this evening. Apparently they don't play golf in the dark. I want to thank my friend Zippy for coming up from Delaware. They don't let him go to AA meetings there, so he's got to come out of state to, uh, to attend meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. 29 years sober, unmarked by a day of recovery. Right here. In <laughs> and, I, and I want to thank my friend Jack C. and his wife Ann for taking, taking us out to dinner last night. And uh, Jack is one of, one of my heroes and one of the um, examples of how Alcoholics Anonymous works. I, um, whenever I do this, my sponsor always tells me I should tell you my name and tell you the truth. I've told you my name. I'm not so sure I'm going to tell you the truth. And here's the thing. I mean, I don't know about anybody else in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I never knew that what it used to be like was going to be important. When I was out there... <laughs> When I was out there, I didn't know I was going to end up here expected to share with you what it used to be like. If I would have known when I was out there that I was going to have to share what it used to be like, I would have paid more attention to my life. (laughs) I would have known I was going to have to report. I would have taken notes. Um, If I would have known about steps four and five, I can guarantee you I would not have done some of the things that I did. But... I didn't know it was going to be important. I didn't know I was going to have to report it. And coupled with that, I'm a blackout drinker. And it's difficult for a blackout drinker to report accurately what it used to be like. I mean, we can rely on what other people tell us, and we can assume maybe they were telling us the truth, but, well, you know, we're never really sure. I have a, a job. I had to get a fingerprint clearance, and I fingerprint really, really well. I've had a lot of practice fingerprinting. <laughs> and I know how to fingerprint. I roll with the prints. I don't resist them. I don't roll ahead of them. I'm just really good at it. And as the lady was fingerprinting me, I didn't want to raise any red flags, But I very casually said to her, well, how far back are you going to check? And she looked me in the eye and said, from the day you were born. And I thought, oh, geez, it's like a fifth step, only it's in the wrong order. Because they're going to know about it before I do. And, uh, And the book Alcoholics Anonymous says more will be revealed. It doesn't say how. So I did the thing. They ran the report. The woman called me up. And you know how non-alcoholic people are going to give us what they think is bad news? They're kind of hesitant when they talk to us. And this woman was very hesitant when she called. And she said, you know, your report came back. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. And she said, well, you know, normally these reports are two or three pages long. I said, "Uh uh-huh. And she said, yours was 57 pages. (laughs) Would you like to come see it? I said, sure. And I went down. And I'll tell you, I know a lot more about what it used to be like. (laughs) Having read that report than I knew before. So... I mean, this is a story I'm going to share with you. I don't know if it's true. I like the story, so I'm going to share it. Um, I didn't have my first drink of alcohol until I was 13 years old. I'm sorry I waited that long, but I had absolutely no idea what alcohol would do to me or for me. I don't remember ever thinking about alcohol. I never thought I would never drink. I certainly never had any anticipation about drinking. I mean, I just never thought about alcohol one way or another. 
And yet when I was 13 years old, I was on a camping trip with a group of girls. We were camped on the beach in Southern California. And I remember that Friday night when we got into the tent. I remember I had a bottle of vodka in my pillowcase. And to this day, I don't know where that bottle came from. I have always believed it was the grace of God, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I've never been able to verify that. Um, but I remember being excited about having it. And I asked anybody if they wanted any, and they didn't. And the reason they gave me for not wanting it was all we had to mix with it was grape soda and root beer. And I said, well, so what? And I took off the top, and they drank half the bottle, and I looked around the tent. Nothing had gotten different. Nothing had changed. So I drank the second half of the bottle, and that was to be the end of my social drinking. Never again after that day did I ever offer anybody a drink out of my bottle. (laughs) And I don't know about anybody else, but I never had resentments until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I never had resentments out there, but one of my early resentments in Alcoholics Anonymous is I heard you talk about your first drink. And you talked about taking the drink, and you described how it felt in your mouth. And you talked about how it felt going down your throat. And you described as it hit your stomach and it exploded, went to your fingernails, your toenails, your pimples fell off, you grew a couple inches taller, you dropped 20 pounds, you became Prince Charles. I mean, wonderful things happened to you. And that simply wasn't the case for me. I had my first drink of alcohol and absolutely nothing happened to me for about 15 minutes. And, um, and at the end of the 15 minutes, the only thing that happened to me was I had to go to the bathroom. And it's my belief tonight that if you were to drink a quart of anything, in about 15 minutes, you would have to go to the bathroom. So I got out of the tent, and I shuffled through the sand down to the outhouse, and I went in and went to the bathroom. And when I got done and went to get up, I realized I was absolutely and totally 100% paralyzed to the toilet seat. I could not move. I couldn't even blink. I, um, I didn't feel my heart beating, and I was overcome with a sense of fear. And, of course, the fear was that somebody else was going to have to come use that outhouse And there I was, paralyzed to the toilet seat. (laughs) Later in my drinking, I did discover that two people can use the same toilet at the same time if the second person is very careful about what they're doing. But But I didn't know that then. (laughs) So I sat there, and I... I, uh, I somehow intuitively knew, I I knew the body was made up of energy, and I somehow figured if I could gather my energy, I would be all right. So I've always described it as my first formal meditation, because I sat and I gathered my energy. And when it seemed to be all in one place, when it seemed to be decentrally located, I fell off the toilet, out the door, into the sand, started crawling back to the camp. Now, of course, since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've discovered that my entire problem that night was my attitude. If my attitude would have been right, I could have had a fantasy as in the Marines, as being dive-bombed as I was trying to get back to safety. And if my attitude would have been right, it could have been a wonderful experience. Now, in my own defense, I always have to tell you that my pants were still down at my ankles. (laughs) I had started to get sick. I couldn't quite get through it. I couldn't get around it. And I've always contended under those circumstances it's a little difficult to have a good attitude. I did somehow manage to get back to the tent. I fell in and I passed out. And when I came to in the morning, I realized nobody was in the tent with me, and I couldn't figure out where they went until my eyes cleared enough that I realized I'd been sick all night long. I'd hit the top of the tent, the side of the tent, the floor. I hadn't missed a square inch, and quite frankly, I didn't want to be in the tent either. So I got out of there. And that was my first drink of alcohol. And it was the most wonderful, magnificent, fabulous, marvelous, spiritual experience I'd ever had. 
And it must have been because I put some amount of alcohol into my body from that day until the day I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't always get drunk, and I didn't always drink the kinds of things that you would classify as a beverage. I drank a lot of vanilla extract. I, I used to buy it by the six-pack. I remember the day the guy at the market called me over and he said, Patty, I can't let you buy vanilla extract anymore. He said, I can't believe anybody bakes as much as you do. And I, I got cut off from that supply, drank a lot of mouthwash. I drank a lot of perfume. Taboo became my after-dinner drink of choice. I, uh, I still have, if you're wearing it, I may follow you too closely and laugh at your neck. I, I still have a problem with taboo, but... Um, but I don't, I, I'm the kind of person, I'm often tempted to introduce myself and say I'm Patty and I'm a pig, because I'm the person that came to your house and ate and drank everything in your bathroom. Um, and I don't know, this is unusual. I don't know other people don't live this way. And when you think about it, really, how would we know? I mean, I was a bar drinker, I was a living room drinker, an alley drinker, a car drinker, a dumpster drinker, an office drinker. I didn't specialize, I just drank. But I love bars. I love sleazy, nasty, ugly bars. I love those bars that have sawdust on the floor. I like them when the mirrors are cracked, so you kind of have to dip around to see yourself in there. The upholstery around the bar is ripped, where people kind of had to hold on as they're falling off their bar stool. They're full of smoke. Well, they're not anymore. In Southern California, in California, you can't smoke in a bar anymore, and I don't really understand. I drank in bars where guys could take a piss against the wall. Um, <laughs> They can still do that. They just can't smoke there. <laughs> but they used to be full of smoke and that wonderful used booze urine smell that I... I salivate still. I love that smell. I'm, sometimes when I'm at work and I'm in a cranky mood, I just go buy one of those joints, I open the door, I take a big hit off of that, and I'm just good to go for the day. I just... Uh, I love that smell. But what fascinates me in retrospect about the quality of people who drank in those bars. I mean, there were CEOs of really big companies. There were, there were bank presidents. There were admirals in the Air Force. There were neurosurgeons. I mean, that's what they said they were. And uh, <laughs> I never told a lie in a bar, but we weren't sitting around there having conversations like, well, what do you prefer, the red mouthwash or the green? <laughs> What's your preference, Chantilly or Aqua Velva? I mean, we weren't having those kinds of conversations, so it doesn't occur to me I'm living any different than anybody else. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I don't have a choice. I don't know that at 13 years old I put alcohol into an alcoholic body, and from that day on I had no choice. I think I drink because I want to drink. I went to San Diego State uh, to college. I graduated with a 3.8 grade point average, and a chronic alcoholic drinking on a daily basis. And the reason I share that with you is it almost killed me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because when I got here, I told you I was too smart to be an alcoholic. Nobody with a 3.8 grade point average. That's 3.8, Carl. Um, <laughs> could possibly be alcoholic. I, I stayed at San Diego. I took classes for a master's degree. I'm one of those people, if I'm doing something well, I want to keep doing it. And I left San Diego because I was offered a job in Chico, California, which is as, almost as far north as you can get and still be in California. I was offered a job in Chico. I thought I was leaving San Diego because I'd taken all the classes San Diego State had to offer, and I was offered this job. Didn't occur to me I was leaving because I had one more drunk driving assault charge pending. 
Another resentment I got in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found out here you can get arrested for a single charge of drunk driving. I never knew that I was got arrested for drunk driving assault. And here's the deal. I'm driving down the street. The light comes on behind me. I know what it means. It means pull over. I pull over. The officer walks up. The first thing I do is slam my car door open. Now, my intent is to knock them into private parts. That's, that's my intention. But men are a little fussy about their private parts. So as the door's flying open, he jumps back. And when he jumps back, it's really a good thing because now he's far enough away that I can get him in focus. And I think, one of him, one of me. One of him, one of me, I think I can take him. One of him, one of me, I think I'll try and I would go out the car for him. And it would be a really good fight for a couple of minutes. I was a lot younger then, but it was a good fight for a few minutes. But I wouldn't remember that he had a friend back at the car. And the friend had a radio, and the friend would call some more friends. And pretty soon, before five of them wanted me, it's not fair anymore. I say, uncle, and they take me away. And next time the light comes on behind me, I pull over. The officer walks up. I slam my car door open, try and knock him in the private parts. He jumps back. He gets far enough away and get him in focus. And I think, one of him, one of me. One of him, one of me, I think I can take him. One of him, one of me, I think I'll try and I'd go for him. Good fight for a minute, but I wouldn't remember the friend, the radio, and the friend's friends. <laughs> Pretty soon before five of them wanted me, it's not fair anymore to say uncle. And they take me away. I didn't do that once or twice. I did that three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve times. Never remembered the friend, the radio, and the friend's friends. <laughs> and that's the insanity of my disease. The insanity of my disease is I do the same thing over and over, and I think the results are going to be different. This time it's a fair fight. This time I'm going to take him. I think I was, and, and when you get out of the car that way, they attach an assault charge on the end. They don't even care that they won the fight. Drunk driving assault, drunk driving assault. <laughs> and I drank during the time, I don't know if it was good or bad, it just was. I drank during the time when the state of California didn't get their underwear in such a knot about drunk driving. They are really getting a little ballistic about it now, but they didn't really ever care so much. I mean, I, I never really had any consequences. Well, I, I lost my driver's license, but you know what? Hey, who needs that to drive a car? <laughs> it's difficult to write a check, but you don't really need it to drive a car. And I'd call my attorney. I'd pay him a 1000 bucks. He'd write a letter. He'd make a phone call, whatever he'd do, and that would be the end of it. And uh, the one time my attorney got nervous, I, he, I had two pending at the same time. And my attorney was nervous. And, I, you know, if your attorney's nervous, I think you should worry a little bit. So I'm in a bar worrying about the fact that my attorney's nervous. And I just struck up a conversation with this guy sitting next to me. And as luck would have it, he worked in a mortuary. And I came up with a plan. I think as alcoholics, we come up with really good plans really quickly. We went over to the mortuary. We got a death certificate. We put my name on it. We filled out all the pertinent information. We forged a doctor's signature. We sent it to court. Because they can't really expect much from you if you're dead. <laughs> and I called my attorney and told him he didn't need to worry. And he didn't worry. I didn't worry. Nobody worried for about 30 days. And then I got pulled over again and charged with drunk driving assault. And... Uh, and this time, the judge wanted to see me. I couldn't figure out why he wanted to see me. He never wanted to see me before, but he wanted to see me that time, so I went. And I'll never forget him looking at me. He said, Miss Ochoa, tell me, how is it a dead person is standing in my court? I shrugged my shoulders. I looked right at him and said, I don't know, bad luck? And that's, <laughs> and that's what I thought it was. It was bad luck.
luck. It was circumstances and the conditions. It was the cops. It was you and they and them. It was a lot of things that never occurred to me anything to do with alcohol. Never occurred to me. So I don't think I'm leaving because I have two drunk driving assault charges pending. I think I'm leaving because I've taken all the classes San Diego State had to offer. I loaded everything I owned into my car, took two cases of beer, two bottles of booze, and I headed north. I got 88 miles from home um, to Santa Ana, which is not the city you want to shoot for. I got to Santa Ana, I was out of booze, and I was thirsty. I pulled off the freeway. I have a sense I could find the sleaziest bar in town without even looking for it. I pulled into the parking lot of this place. I walked in. It was full of smoke. It had that wonderful used booze urine smell. Willie Nelson was singing on the jukebox, and I knew I was home. That's as far north as I ever got, 88 miles from where I started from. Alcohol had become my mother, my father, my God, my friend, my lover, my companion, my support. And at some point it had turned. I've always believed it was in the middle of my first drink. But at some point it had turned and began to strip me of self-esteem, self-worth, dignity, decency, integrity, honesty, all the things we have going for us as human beings. And, and alcohol took it all long before I came to you. Alcohol controlled every area of my life, where I would live and where I would work people I would run with and eventually the people I would run from and I didn't have a clue. I thought I drank because I wanted to drink. I didn't know that I didn't have a choice. I got a job in Santa Ana in the profession of my choice. I rose very quickly to the top and that too almost killed me in Alcoholics Anonymous because when I got here I told you I was too successful to be an alcoholic. I told you about the trophies and the plaques. I told you about the big oak desk I sat behind. What I didn't tell you about I was in the newspaper business and, and I know tonight it was because God gave me a gift. We often won awards but we also often gave awards. And they didn't tell you about the times that I would come out of a blackout standing behind a podium much like this in a room full of people holding an award, not knowing if I was giving it or receiving it. <laughs> and so I would say thank you and I would go sit down and then somebody would elbow me and tell me I was presenting it to the Kiwanis Club and I'd have to get up and start over again. And, and I didn't tell you about that, I just told you I was too successful to be an alcoholic. I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous with which I pray God was my last drunk driving assault. I, uh, by the time I got my la arrested the last time, the state of California was really getting upset about people barreling down the freeway at 80 miles an hour, blowing anything in the breathalyzer above their grade point average. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm the kind of person I get, uh, I always get released from jail, I always get the arrest report and I read it. I find out where I made my mistake so I could practice that part so that next time I get that part right. And you see, I always knew there'd be a next time. I always knew there'd be a next time. And so I practiced field sobriety tests a lot. And so by what I pray God was the last one, I was doing really, really well. I'd have given myself an A+. In fact, I think I mentioned that to the officer. Um, I was doing a good, good job. And at the end of it, he asked me to say the ABCs backwards. Well, the time before I had responded with, well, I can't even do that sober. Well, then I had just confessed, and they took me away, so... <laughs> So on the last one, when he asked me to say the ABCs backwards, I said, okay, and I turned around. <laughs> See, you think it's funny. He wasn't even amused. I, I was turned around. He put handcuffs on me. He took me to Orange County Jail. He put me in a cell with criminals. I went to court on that charge. I was 26 years old. I was drunk that morning in court. It's the only way I went to court, the laundromat, to work, to the grocery store. It's the only way I did anything. Stood there drunk that morning in court because of my past record being sentenced to 10 years in prison. And in the middle of sentencing me, the expression on the judge's face changed. The tone of his voice got different. And I know he was as surprised at what he was saying as I was at what I was hearing. 
Because in the middle of sentencing, he looked at me and he said, I know this won't work for you, but I'm going to offer you one more chance, and he offered me an alternative. And part of that alternative was meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wish I could tell you I took the alternative. I came here, I looked at the steps, knew there were solution to problems in my life, worked them all in the first week and skyrocketed to recovery. But there's people in the room who know me, so... Uh, <laughs> I can tell you this, I stood there and thought about it. Jail, alternative. Jail, oh, I've been to jail. There's more alcohol and other drugs in the institution than there are some days on the street. If you know what to do, who to do it to, and you're willing to go to any lengths, and I always was. Jail, alternative. Jail, alternative. Public defender's putting his elbow in my ribs the day the $1,000 attorney is gone. I got the public defender putting his elbow in my ribs trying to get me to make a decision, and I'm weighing it out. And trying to figure it all out, I had what I know tonight is a moment of clarity. Because standing there drunk that morning, I knew as clearly as I have known anything that if I went to jail one more time, I would either die in the institution or I'd become institutionalized for life. And so I took the alternative. I left the courtroom and I drank for three more months. In retrospect, I can tell you I didn't drink a greater quantity. Physically, it had been impossible to drink a greater quantity of alcohol. But I drank with a sense of urgency and a desperation that I had never known. And on October 4th, 1975, the day before I used to go back to court to tell the judge what it was I was doing with the alternative he gave me, on that day I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know what ANA was. I thought it was something like the PTA or Parents Without Partners. And, uh, and a lot of days it is. But um, <laughs> as far as I know, I had never heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what you people were going to do to me or for me. My first meeting was a speaker meeting, and I can't tell you who talked that night, but I heard two things. I heard we don't drink between meetings. Well, I quickly looked around, and I didn't see any of you drinking in the meeting. And I thought, if you're not drinking in the meeting, and you don't drink between the meetings, when do you drink? And I don't know about any about the other newcomers, but it made me nervous. I could not figure out why the judge sent me to a place where people didn't drink. I would have understood if he sent me to the Sears School of Safe Driving. I did not understand why he sent me to a place where people didn't drink. Another thing I heard in that meeting was that the answers were in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So after the meeting, I stole the book. I mean, God knows I need to have the answers. <laughs> I can't tell you how irritated I was. Not only could I not find the answers in that book, I couldn't even find the questions. And I thought, oh, dear God, I've stolen the wrong book. I'm going to have to go back and get the right one. And, I, and I'm a thief. Now, I don't know I'm a thief. I had to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and have my sponsor tell me I was a thief. I think it's really critical that you have a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's really important that your sponsor is not as emotionally involved in your life as you are. Um, it irritates me sometimes, but I'll tell you what, she has a whole different perspective of my life than I do. And her perspective of my life is I'm a thief. I don't think I'm a thief. I mean, here's the deal. I'm in a bar drinking. The bar closes. I find some keys. I go out to the parking lot. I find the car that they fit. And I'm driving myself home. My sponsor and the San Diego police think this is Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> I think it's alternative transportation. I, mean, I just need to get home. I come to your house, I pick up a few things. They think it's robbery, I think it's shopping. Um, <laughs> rationalization, justification, and denial, that's how my disease manifests itself. Rationalization, justification, and denial. No matter what it is I do, I explain to you why I'm doing it. And as I'm explaining it to you, I'm hearing it. And as I'm hearing it, I'm believing it. Rationalization, justification, and denial. Um, and I don't know that. And I don't know that. So 
Um, I am really ticked off. I have read the book. I cannot find the answers. I have stolen the wrong book. I'm going to have to go back and get the answer book. I mean, everybody knows there's an answer book. Wednesday, with four days of sobriety, I went to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was a small discussion meeting. And in that meeting, I heard, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I could not figure out what it was you had that was so hot that I should be willing to go to any length to get it. I mean, look at the person next to you. Unless you're sleeping with them, what is it? I mean, <laughs> and then I saw him. And I truly believe there's a him for each of us. This guy was a skinny little fellow. He was bald-headed. He wore baggy pants. I don't know about in uh, Maryland, but the kids in, I work with kids. I work with kids who wear pants that have absolutely no relationship to their body size. <laughs> they wear pants, honest to God, they could have put a homeless family in their pants with them. I, <laughs> his weren't that baggy, but they were baggy. He had tennis shoes on with no shoelaces, but the holes were there where they should have been, and he nodded out during the meeting. And I quickly assessed the situation. I figured he's shooting heroin. Folks who shoot heroin, not out. And I can probably do this thing and not drink if I can shoot a little heroin. So I found out where he worked. And the next day, I snuck down to his office. And I said, Dick, I have to do this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to stay out of jail. And I don't know how to do it. And he told me if I would go to meetings and read the book and talk to other alcoholics and not drink, so I'll guarantee you won't get drunk. And if you don't get drunk, your life will get different. And I'm grateful he told it to me that way. He didn't tell me my life would get better. He didn't tell me my finances would get better, my relationships would get better, my family life would get better, my job life would get better, my sex life would get better. He didn't tell me any of it would get better, and I'm grateful, because none of it has. So, a little hope for the newcomer. Um, the two newcomers ripping through that book looking for, wait, 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 where, where does it say that? But it's all gotten different. And as I stand here tonight, I can tell you from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I have never had it so good. See, I don't know good from bad for me. I'm going through something I think is good for me, and it generally turns out to be bad for me. And I'm going through something I think is bad for me, and it generally turns out to be good for me. I've gone through times in my sobriety where my entire life has fallen apart. I've gone through times sober that are really real. I'm, I'm very dramatic, so I always refer to them as the dark night of the soul. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're going through it, then I just tell you to get over yourself. But, um, <laughs> I've gone through really, really dark times. But if I don't drink and don't die and don't drink and don't die and come out the other side, every time I have thought my life was falling apart, what was really happening is it was falling together. And it had to be exactly that way for God to move me to where he'd have me be. I don't let go of stuff easy. Everything that's been removed from me has claw marks on it. I do not let go. I dig a little rut. I get comfortable. I decorate it. I do not, I do not let go easily. But every time I thought my life was falling apart, what was really happening is it was falling together. My life, it seems to me, and again, this is just my perspective, it seems to me that all my life people hurt me. People disappointed me and they let me down. People told me they would be there and they weren't. My parents told me they loved me anymore, their love and I'd have died. Their love was physically, mentally, and emotionally abusive. I had made a small decision, a, a, a decision as a small child that I just don't want to be hurt anymore. 
And as a small child, I begin to build a brick wall between me and you. And I build a brick wall just to keep you out because I don't want to be hurt anymore. What I never knew about that brick wall, it kept you out. But what I never knew is it made me a prisoner inside. I lived behind that wall in isolation and loneliness. And alcohol didn't allow me to come out and play. Alcohol just made it okay for me to be back there. But when you live behind a wall like that, you don't believe and you don't trust. But I believed that old man that day. And I know tonight the reason I believed him is the magic that happens here. One alcoholic talking to another. One alcoholic talking to another came through that brick wall that nothing had come through for years and years and years and years. And I believed him. I already had the book, so I went home and I'd open the book every night to chapter 3 and I'd read the line that says, most of us are unwilling to admit we're real alcoholics. I'd say amen and close the book. And that was reading the book. Uh, my court program said I had to go to two meetings a week. I thought that was really obsessive. But I was willing to go to any lengths to stay out of jail. So I went to the two meetings a week my court program said I had to go to. I would go down to the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach where they have AA meetings. I'd have a cup of coffee on the way out. I'd say hi, Jim, to the manager. He'd say hi, Patty. That was talking to another alcoholic. And the only thing I did right is I didn't drink. And I didn't drink, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drink. And I prayed God happens to everybody who's new what happened to me. I've been in pain in the last 27 years, but I have never been in the kind of pain that I was in eight and a half months away from my last drink. The pain of not drinking and not recovering. The pain of not drinking and not recovering is the greatest pain I've ever been in. And that pain, eight and a half months away from my last drink, that pain drove me to my knees. And on my knees, I took the first step of recovering Alcoholics Anonymous. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. Whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. Whether I'm fighting it because I'm drinking it or I'm fighting it because you're drinking it. Whenever I get into the ring with alcohol, I lose. And I was powerless. And alcohol controlled every year of my life. Where I would live, where I would work, I had no choices in my life. If I don't like the way I live today, I can choose to live differently tomorrow. But when I drink alcohol, I don't have that choice. When I drink alcohol, I'm damned to live the same way, day after day after day after day. And my life had become unmanageable. And for me, it took eight and a half months away from my last drink to see the evidence. You all saw it when I came in. It was piled this high. But you gave me the dignity to do what I had to do for as long as I had to do it until I got far enough away from my last drink. And I pray, God, that everybody who's new gets in that kind of pain, the pain of not drinking and not recovering. And I pray that that pain drives you to your knees. And I pray that on your knees you take the first step of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to talk about the steps because for me that's what happened. What it used to be like, I think we all have the same story. We just acted it out a little bit differently. What happened for me is I know there is no way to get from where I was on October 4, 1975 to where I am tonight except through the power and the magic of the 12 steps of recovery. And this is just my experience. If you have another experience, it's your experience. This is just my experience. Somebody one night told me I didn't have my experience, and it just spun me out for about three weeks. <laughs> um, I'm a loner by nature. Alcoholics Anonymous didn't change my nature. What Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is you've given me the courage and strength to do the things I need to do in spite of my nature. But I'm a loner by nature. Left to my own devices, I like to sit on my couch. I like to watch TV. I like to read. I like to fish. I like to throw and reel. I'm not big on catching because then you have to touch the fish and they're really nasty. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I enjoy my own company. I really have a good time. I entertain myself far more than you will ever entertain me. Um, you know you're a loner if you don't like AA potlucks. That's generally the indicator. Um, the most difficult thing for me to do is to be here with you. 
Um, I have, the book talks about we become disgustingly even dangerously antisocial. I didn't become that way, start out that way. I have developed one social skill. I used it early today. I'm fresh out for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to thank Dot. See how we, how no social skills. I forgot to thank Dot for hosting me. Dot sat in Baltimore Air, Airport for three hours waiting as we were circling Baltimore because of the weather. And then all of a sudden the pilot says, well, We've got to go to Philadelphia to get gas. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, I have never had a fear of flying. I mean, I have a fear of crashing and burning, but I've never had a fear of flying. <laughs> but he comes on and says that, and I'm thinking, okay, what does that mean? I mean, on my car, when that light comes on, i got a good 58 miles left. <laughs> what does that mean on an airplane? You know, well, we go to Philadelphia, we get gas, you know, we wait there till the weather clears, and then and poor Dot's sitting there for three hours waiting for me. And I, of course, given her the wrong flight number, you know, I mean, just don't depend on an alcoholic, and, uh, and I want to thank you for picking me up. But I did save that. I had the one social skill I, say, I had that I saved on Thursday for Dot. So, I mean, it is. It's truly one a day out of social skills for the rest of the day. Um, I used to say I have no problem with God. The truth is I have one problem with God. I believe we are all God's children, and I've always wanted to be an only child. <laughs> That's my only problem with God. But for me, for me, the power greater than myself in step two was not God. For me. Being a loner, if I had come to believe that God was going to restore me to sanity, I'd have sat on my couch. God would have flown in, sprinkled me with sanity, taken off to wherever it is God hangs out, and that would have been the end of it. I would have never had to do another thing. I would be home in California right now watching reruns of Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and somebody else would be here sharing with you. So for me, the power greater than myself was the action of steps 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I came to believe that through taking the action of the steps, I would be restored to right thinking. In California, we every once in a while, I hear somebody tell a newcomer, don't think. And I wonder, how do you do that? I think all the time. I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about something else. <laughs> then I start thinking about the fact that I'm thinking, then I start thinking I shouldn't be thinking what I'm thinking while I'm thinking what I'm thinking that I shouldn't be thinking, then I try not to think about what I'm thinking while I'm thinking. I'm just telling you what, I'm grateful I don't have a loudspeaker on my head. <laughs> Can you imagine if everything you thought came barreling out? I mean, how humiliating would that be? So, um, but what I've discovered is that my alcoholism, my thinking is just a little skewed from the rest of the world. And I came to believe that through taking the action the steps, I would be restored to right thinking. I spent my whole life trying to think my way into right living. That has never worked for me. I'm happy to report that through taking the action of the steps, I have been able to act my way into right thinking. And it talks about it in the book. It says uh, in the discussion of step 10, it says something to the effect of, for by this time sanity will have been restored through taking the action of the steps. I hear people talk about step three and you ask them, well, what step are you on? They say, well, I'm on the third step. And every day I get up, determine will my life or the care of God. And then about noon, I take it back. Well, I'm on the third step. You know, I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of God, except for my sex and finances, because I don't want to be foreign celibate. And uh, <laughs> I pretty much stay away from those people, because I don't think they understand the step. I drive the same way to work every day. And I'm driving up Chapman Avenue in Orange, California, and I come to an intersection, and I have to make a decision. Turn right, turn left, or go straight. 
To get to my job, I got to turn right. I make a decision to turn right, and I go straight through the intersection. So I make a U-turn. I head back toward the intersection. Now to get to my job, I got to turn left. I make a decision to turn left, and I go straight through the intersection. Now I'm getting a little irritated. I start to cuss, make another U-turn, head back toward the intersection, make a decision, turn right, turn left, to go straight. To get to my job, I got to turn right. I make a decision, turn right, I go straight through the intersection. Now I'm really irritated, and I make another U-turn, I'm headed back to the intersection. Get to my job, I got to turn left. I make a decision to turn left. I take the steering wheel, and I do this. The book talks about something to the effect of, although our decision was vital, it had very little permanent effect unless immediately followed by action. The decision I'm making in my car has no impact on my car. What has an impact on my car is the action of turning the steering wheel. And here's a decision they're asking us to make. How do you want to live? Chronic, hopeless, helpless, alcoholic, or do you want to believe the people in AA are telling you the truth? Incomprehensible demoralization, despair. Despair, hope. Despair, hope. It's not a difficult decision. I think I'll go with hope. But the decision had no impact unless I took an action. And for me, the first right action was the fourth step. I did my fourth step the way the book says to do it. I made the columns. I wrote down everybody I resented, which basically turned out to be everybody who breathed air that I thought should have been mine. <laughs> wrote in the next column what they did to me. Well, I wanted to tell you all my life what they did to me. I was sorry I waited this long. I was really having fun doing this thing. Third column, how it affected me. Well, it affected my security, my self-worth. Well, no wonder I drank. If you, all these people did all these things to you. You'd have drank too. And I was really having fun, but then in my zealousness, I accidentally turned the page of the big book. And hidden, after it shows the diagram, hidden in the body of the text, it says, referring to our list again, we put out of our minds the wrongs others had done, and we looked at our part. Well, now it wasn't any fun anymore, but <laughs> I did that with my resentments, my fears, and my relationships. And for the first time, I saw who Patio really was. I'm a real alcoholic. I have a bottle. Never understood a glass. What's the point? Um, <laughs> so I spent my whole life putting on a show, rationalization, justification, denial, and I believed it. I had no idea. And then I looked at the fifth step, and I thought, it was cute. I was raised Catholic. Um, those of us who are Catholic, we know about confession. We know it doesn't work. And I figured the fifth step was for the rest of you to have the same experience we had. And I, of course, didn't have to do it, so I put my fourth step in the trunk of my car, and I drove around with a continual sense of impending doom. And, of course, the fear was I'd be rear-ended, my trunk would fly open, my fourth step would be everywhere. <laughs> but rather than do a fifth step, I just drove around that way for a really long time. And then one night I was in Los Angeles visiting this woman, and we were talking. As we were talking, I realized I was doing a fifth step, and I thought, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I went to my car, and I got my fourth step, and I went in, and I did my fifth step with her. When I finished my fifth step, that big brick wall I had built between me and you, that wall didn't crumble. One brick came out of that wall. But every time I shared with another alcoholic, another brick has come out of that wall. And tonight I have no brick wall between me and you. I have a little styrofoam thing I throw up sometimes because sometimes I get afraid. Sometimes I feel insecure. Sometimes I have self-doubt. And you're not there. And when you're not there, I throw up the little styrofoam wall. And then one of you comes and blows it down, takes my hand and walks with me and you walk with me through whatever it is. My sponsor, who's a, just a critical crab, um, <laughs> I, 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 I have a job that God gave me that I'm really good at. But every once in a while I'm driving to work and I have this thought, today's the day they're going to fire me. Today's the day they're going to find out I can't do this job. 
Now, I used to have that thought when I was drinking. And when I'd have that thought when I was drinking, I'd get really angry. And I would get so angry that I'd go to a bar. And I'd order a drink, and I'd tell the bartender about those SOBs I used to work for. And how they don't appreciate me, and they don't, their whole company's going to go down the toilet now that I'm not working for them. And I order another drink, another drink, and I never even get to work to get fired. Today, when I have that thought, I call my sponsor. She laughs. She says, honey, just go ahead and go to work. After they fire you, call me back. (laughs) See, today I have you to walk with me through the insecurity, through the fear, through the self-doubt. And you take my hand and you open new doors. I went home from doing my fifth step. I did step six and seven by mistake. I didn't mean to recover this quickly, but um, (laughs) I just by coincidence opened the big book to the part where it talks about step six and seven. And you don't have to be a journalist to know that book's very poorly written. Any newcomer will tell you. Uh, But that part about step six and seven gets kind of poetic. And I just kind of got lulled into reading it. And when I became aware of what I was reading, I was in the middle of the seven-step prayer. And when I became aware of what I was reading, that prayer took the longest journey anything has ever taken for me, the journey from my head to my heart. And I knew I believed it. And I finished reading the prayer, and what it says in the book happened to me. I walked through the archway to freedom. I walked away from the person I have been all of my life to start to become the person God intended for me to be. And I believe that's the miracle here. We tell new people don't leave before the miracle happens, and then we don't tell them what the miracle is. For me, the miracle is we have an opportunity to walk away from the person we've been all of our lives, to start to become the person God intended for us to be. And I'm afraid too many people do leave before they give themselves that chance. The best I've ever described myself when I came here was an animal with latent human tendencies. That's what walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, because you've been willing to share with me. I've become very kind, very loving, very nurturing, very caring. Of course, now they're telling me it's codependency and I have to recover from it, but... uh, I love the person who I am. I'm tempted to write a book, Women Who Love Themselves Too Much. Um, Steps eight and nine for me are conventional ways of getting rid of conventional guilt. I felt guilty because I was guilty. I did a lot of things to a lot of people for one more drink. If it came between you and a drink, I took a drink. If it came between a job and a drink, I took a drink. If it came between anything and a drink, I took a drink. I did a lot of things to a lot of people for one more drink. Big controversy in Southern California. You hear people say, you should put yourself number one on the list. Selfish and self-centered, that's the nature of my disease. If I put myself number one on the list, I would never get to number two. <laughs> the amends were not about me. The amends were about you. The amends were about the relationships in my life. The amends were about other people. They weren't about me. And I made, I, I, had, I made the list, and I became willing to make amends to everybody on that list but one. Absolutely refused to make amends to my father. I hate my father. My father's a Jekyll and Hyde drunk, and I'm the target of his abuse, and I hate him. I'm not making amends to him. My sponsor said, that's fine, as long as you're willing to pay the price. And I am. I don't want to go to the father-daughter banquet. I can pay the price. I don't care. And I began to make amends. And then it wasn't about sorry. I said, sorry, all my life. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then I'd do it again and get caught. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then I'd do it again and get caught. It wasn't about sorry. It was about living differently. And I don't know how to do it. So I come here, and you share with me. You share with me how to be an employee and not take a drink. You share with me how to be a daughter and not take a drink. You share with me how to be a parent and not take a drink. And then I go out there and I try it, and then I come back. And somebody else shares with me how they are a mother and they don't take a drink, and how they are an employee and they don't take a drink. You have never told me what to do. You have simply shared with me what you do. The most important commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous, coffee maker, absolutely the most important commitment. Try having a meeting without it. It's the most important commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous. One time 
Uh, they made me coffee maker, and it's very prestigious, very important job. They handed me this huge coffee pot. I live alone. I have never made coffee in that huge <laughs> coffee pot. And they hand me a huge pot of can of coffee. Huge coffee pot, huge can of coffee. I take it home, I come back the next week, got my commitment, got there an hour and a half early, filled up my coffee pot with water, opened up my can of coffee, poured it in. <laughs> Plugged it in, it perked a little slip of gum. Bloop, bloop. Seemed to be going a little slower, but it was perking. Coffee got done, people started coming. First guy pours himself a cup of coffee, takes a hit. He had his eyeballs rolled back in his head. But he didn't say anything. You don't dare say what crappy coffee, because you'll get a point of coffee maker. Next person filled up a cup, took a boom. I mean, nobody drank a full cup of coffee that night. There were a lot of cups poured, very little coffee drank. And nobody said anything. Nobody said, who made this lousy coffee? Nobody said, Patio, you need to get out of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't even know how to make coffee, you stupid wench. I mean, nobody said anything. <laughs> Clean that up just a little bit. Um, <laughs> but what happened after the meeting when the secretary did his announcements? He acknowledged how important coffee maker is. He said, this is the most important commitment we have. And because it's so important, Patty, we're going to assign you an assistant coffee maker. <laughs> and they assigned me an assistant. So the next week, my, and I told my assistant, you need to be here two hours. I don't care an hour that it takes. You be here two hours. We're getting this coffee done early. I am, my assistant showed up. If I do nothing else well, I delegate. Okay, assistant coffee maker, you make it. And I watched. And he showed me how to make coffee. He filled up the pot, he put the right amount in, and I watched. And one more time, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous showed me how to live, did not tell me, you have never told me what to do. You have simply shown me by your experience. And that's how I made my amends, as I watched you. And I went, and I was a good daughter with my mother, and I was a good sister with my brothers and sisters, and I was a good employee, and I was a good mother, and I, and I did those things that you said you did. And I took them out, and I added them to my life. And I made amends. Um, now, I'm sober quite a while. I don't want, I'm antisocial. I don't like people, so who needs friends? I always thought friends were like in the way kind of thing, objects. Friends call you up, they go, hey, Nancy, where were you last night? I missed you. Well, you know what? If I wanted you to know where I was, I'd have told you before I went. <laughs> Why are you so, I mean, this is what I think. They're a nuisance. So I don't have any, and I'm okay with it. But then one night I notice after a meeting, I notice other people have friends. I notice after a meeting, this little group of people's over here hanging out. They're talking about going to coffee. These people over here are talking about a move. I mean, people are like having friends, and I think, hey, I want a friend. And, but I don't know how to do it, but I want one. So this is how I make friends. I sit in a meeting. If you sit next to me two or three meetings in a row, you are now my friend. <laughs> And I have a friend, I'm very excited about it. But then my friend will do something to annoy me, like crack their gum, breathe too hard, kick me while they're crossing their legs. I mean, they'll do something. Now, you cannot be my friend anymore. I need a new friend. So I sit next to somebody else two or three meetings in a row. Now I got a new friend. Now I got this friend. 
But then that friend will annoy me by breathing too hard or cracking their gum or going to get coffee, not asking me if I want some. I mean, something will happen. So they can't be my friends. So then I have to sit next to somebody else. AA is huge. You can do this for a really long time. <laughs> Switching up friends about every fourth meeting. Well, I'm having a conversation with my sponsor. Not about this, but I'm just having a conversation. I just, in this conversation, kind of say, people in AA don't know how to be friends, and I think I'm going to go on Saturday to here. And I'm about two minutes away from that sentence, and she says, hey, wait a minute. Notice how they do this? Wait a minute. Back up to that part about people in AA don't know how to be friends. Oh, well, they don't, and that was two minutes ago, and I got this other important stuff. No, no, back up to there. She said, Patty, you won't make amends to your father. I said, absolutely. She said, Patty, hate doesn't know that it's directed at one person. Hate will spill out into every relationship in your life. I became willing to make amends to my father. Not because I want to go to the father-daughter banquet. I became willing to make amends to my father because I want to have relationships with you. doesn't matter what my motive is. doesn't matter what my feeling is. What matters is what my action is. And I began to make amends to my father. My father and I never went to the father-daughter potluck. But I'm going to tell you that when my father passed away, I was okay with him. And when my father died, I was able to be supportive to my brothers and sisters. And those were the amends that I made to my father. And, in making, and, then, I, and then I got this, uh, this lady that I sat next to two or three times who's now my next friend. The book talks about we are people who normally would not mix. My friend Cindy Martindale, who I called the princess, she called me the medicine woman, we are people who normally would not mix. I think self-supporting through your own contributions is a job. She thinks it's alimony. Um, <laughs> we would go to Palm Springs for a weekend. I've got a you know paper bag with my stuff in it. She's got four foot lockers because um, she has to do costume changes every seven seconds. Um, <laughs> We are people who normally would not mix, but what we have in common is our passion for Alcoholics Anonymous. We are both in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we became friends, and we were, they called us the Bob sisters, because we'd be sitting in meetings, you know, bobbing our head together at the same thing, same time. And, and she was my best friend for 18 years, and there wasn't probably a, a day that went by that we didn't have some kind of communication, regardless of who she was dating, regardless of who I was with, regardless of... of um, what was going on in our lives, there wasn't a day that we didn't have some kind of communication. And there wasn't a day that we didn't end the day that everything, it didn't mean we didn't fight. I mean, when you are people who normally would not mix, you disagree a lot. Um, but there wasn't a day that ended that we weren't okay with one another. And I don't know how to do that. I learned that from you. And on September 1st, 2001, my friend, the princess, was diagnosed with breast cancer, metastasized in the liver. And on October 27th that year, she died. And I'm still having a really hard time with it. Because, you see, I'm the kid. I just don't want to be hurt anymore. I build walls to keep you out because I don't want to be hurt anymore. And when you start coming into my life, um, then I have the ability to be hurt. And when my friend, the princess, died, I wanted to put that wall back up so bad. I had the privilege of being with her those last six weeks on, on a daily basis. It was my great honor to spend the last 20 minutes of her life with her. And when she took her last breath, I was in the room. And it was so incredibly painful for me. Um, I wanted to put the wall back up because I just don't want to be hurt anymore. And the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous 
one more time, you wouldn't let me put the wall. You'd let me throw a styrofoam thing up every once in a while. And you'd let me keep it there until I, until I was safe enough for me to come out. You never barged it down. You never told me um, what to do or how to feel. Um, you just shared with me your experience, and you opened your hearts, and you held out your hand. And you said, when you're ready, take our hand and walk with us. And because my feet knew where to go, I spent, I was always in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't feel like coming. I didn't feel like sitting with you. I didn't feel like answering the phone. It didn't matter what I felt like, though. What mattered is what I did. And I stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And quite frankly, it was an Al-Anon who saved my life during that period. Because I had an Al-Anon remind me of the tremendous love that I had for my friend, the princess. And she said, Patty, you cannot love that deeply unless you are also able to feel pain that deeply. And if you want everything that God has given you, you need to embrace the pain the same as you embrace the love. And so I became willing to, to embrace the pain. And I'm still embracing the pain. I still miss her on, on a daily basis. I miss her. But I look around and I got people like Zippy and like Jack and like Carl. I got people in my life who love me. And I can love them. And I didn't come here for that. I just came here to stay out of jail. That's all I wanted out of, out of this deal. And if I'd have gotten in my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. If a single day in the last 27 years I'd had it my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. Steps 10, 11, and 12 for me are the recovery steps. They're the steps that allow me to continue to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous. 10 says the process is powerful. Keep using it. Keep writing about it, talking about it. Ask God to remove the defect, make amends if necessary, and then turn your attention to somebody you can help. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? It seems to me that when I'm focused on my problem, God can't do a thing with it. But when I turn my attention to you, God can come in and take care of my problem. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? Selfish and self-centered, it's, a, it's the nature of my disease. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? Step 11 for me, my prayer in the morning is very simply, thy will be done. I'm so naive, I truly believe the rest of the day is God's business. My job is to not drink, show up, and live life to the fullest. And the rest of it is God's business. I know I'm supposed to be here tonight because if I wasn't, I would be someplace else. We are all exactly where we're supposed to be right here, right now. My prayer at night is a little scarier. My prayer at night, and I offer it to anybody who'd like to use it. My prayer at night is, dear God, please have people treat me tomorrow exactly the way I treated people today. And when I know I'm going to say that prayer tonight, it will hold me in good stead. Keeps me from flipping people off on the freeway. Um, I still count, but I do not have to announce the number of items in the guy in front of me in the 10 item or less line. Um, when I know I'm going to say that prayer tonight, it reminds me that I am not bigger than the rules. The rules apply to me. You know, every once in a while, alcoholics think, well, I didn't take a drink today. That must mean I can park in the in the red zone. Well, I didn't take a drink today. That must mean I can park in the in the handicapped parking spot, even though I'm not. Well, I didn't take a drink today. That must mean, and and the truth for me is no. I didn't take a drink today by the grace of God, and I'm not bigger than the rules. The rules apply to me, and when I say that prayer, it reminds me that the rules apply to me. Um, step twelve is the greatest gift you've ever given me the opportunity to take a little of my past and give it to another alcoholic, to look into the eyes of another alcoholic and say, honey, you don't have to live that way anymore. Come, Take my hand, come with me, sit in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you don't have to live that way a day at a time. 
Remember, I hear people always say, you know, it hasn't been necessary for me to drink. I want you to know it's been very necessary for me to drink. It's been an emergency. It's been so necessary for me to drink. It's been overwhelmingly incredible necessary for me to drink. But because the steps work and because you've been willing to share with me, I haven't taken a drink or used another drug since the day it came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never planned to stay this long. Absolutely never planned to stay this long. And it talks in the book at the end of um, page 164, I believe, it talks in the book about great events will come to pass for you and countless others. And I want to tell you tonight that great events have come to pass for me. Absolutely incredible events have come to pass for me. There's a God that has a plan for me beyond my wildest imagination. Left to my own devices, I shortchanged myself. There's a God that has a plan beyond anything I can ever think of. I have a job that I'm really, really good at, um, doing something that I never planned to do. And I don't do it. I'm, I, God does the work. I'm glad I get the paycheck, but God does the work. Um, I have people in my life who I love and people who love me. Great events will come to pass for you and countless others. I have a son that's a, a direct result of my alcoholism. I never wanted to be a mother. I found out that is not adequate birth control. Um, <laughs> my son was 11 months old when I came to you, and I brought him with me. I didn't know what to do with him, so I brought him to meetings. And you would take him and you would hold him, and at the end of the meeting, you'd give him back to me, and I'd bring him to another meeting. And you taught my son everything he knows. You taught him how to love and how to be kind, how to be gentle, how to be caring. You also taught him how to con and manipulate, and I'm not real thrilled with that, but... <laughs> I guess you have to take the good with the bad. Everything my son knows, he, he learned from you. My son's been to more meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous than most of the women I sponsor. If coming to meetings would keep you sober, my son would have never had a problem. My son knows Alcoholics Anonymous. If knowledge would keep you sober, my son would never have had a problem. But my son had a journey that he had to take. And my son started his journey when he was in, uh, in his teens. And, um, and his journey took him to some places that, that alcoholics go. And my son um, went to treatment once and uh, stayed sober for about a minute and a half because he still had a plan. And if you're an alcoholic and you have a plan, um, you're not ready. And I don't think you're going to stay in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my son had a plan. And he would call me up and uh, um, I had plans too. i share my plans with him and I would... Um, you know, and I did all the things that were, you know, I mean, intellectually, I know better. Don't send him money, so I didn't. I money-grammed it. Um, <laughs> I have a MoneyGram Express account, so I save money when I money-gram him money. And, uh, and he's been in and out, and he's got a plan, and, and he just kept having plans. And on October 23rd, 2002, my son called me up at work when one more time. He called Collect, and that's how he called. And he called me at work collect, and he said, uh, Mom, can you take me to detox? And I said, no, Patrick, I can't take you. If I come pick you up, I'm going to kill you. I can't take you to detox, but you stay where you are. And I'll call somebody. And I called a man in Alcoholics Anonymous, not somebody I'd have picked for him. But God did for me what I can't do for myself. I called this guy, and I said, Jack, you have to go get him, because if I get him one more time, I'm going to kill him. And he picked up a newcomer from our indigent detox, and the two of them went and picked up my son. My son got in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's seven and a half months sober tonight, and I hope he's out of plans. 
I just pray, God, that he's out of plans. I know that I ran out of plans on October 23, 2002. I ran out of plans for him. And I hope that he ran out of plans. And if you're new, I hope you ran out of plans. My son got in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he started working the steps, and he got to the ninth step, and he had some court stuff to do, and he, he went to court to let him know where he was living, and they took him into custody for 120 days. And if you don't think your alcoholism affects anybody but you, I'm going to tell you as a parent, um, alcoholism affects somebody other than me. My son went to jail, and they do this formula. They never did the formula for me, but they did the formula. And he, and he had to spend 65 days in jail. And my son spent 65 days in jail with a good attitude. His mother, on the other hand, did not have nearly the good of attitude as he did, and I still want to write a letter to the public defender and tell him what an asshole he was. But, <laughs> but my son had a good attitude, and when he was in jail, they could only have visitors on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And they could only have one visit a day, and you know there was not a day that he could have visits that there weren't men or women from Alcoholics Anonymous visiting him because he was in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's been to jail before, and nobody but his sorry mother has gone to see him. But he never missed a day of having men and women from Alcoholics Anonymous visit him. And men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous wrote him letters. Jack wrote him letters. He doesn't even know him. Men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous who don't even know him wrote him letters. And that's the magic here. The magic here is one alcoholic talking to another. If I have a desire to stop drinking, there are rooms full of people who don't even know me, who are willing to put their hand out and take my hand and walk with me if I have a desire to stop drinking. I hope if you're new, you have a desire. If you have a desire, put your hand out. There's rooms full of people who will take your hand and walk with you. Great events will come to pass for you and countless others. I have my life today is beyond, beyond, beyond. And I'm going to end because Zippy wants to dance. He's already got his dance card filled. Um, <laughs> the reason they have the countdown on Saturday night, you know that guy or that woman you've had your eye on all weekend? The one I had my eye on only has 12 days, so I... <laughs> it's just my luck. Um, when I... I'm going to end with this story because I like this story and it puts it all together for me. And it's a story of the man that goes to see St. Peter and he asks St. Peter to show him heaven and hell. St. Peter takes him to a room and it says hell on the door. But when they open the door, they're looking at a banquet. Tables and tables and tables of food. As much food as you could ever imagine. Any kind of food you'd ever want. And the people in that room with all that food are hungry. They're starving and they're dying. And the reason that they're hungry is they had those long wooden spoons that people used to cook with. They had those long wooden spoons tied to their hands, and the spoons were just a little bit too long, and they couldn't quite get the food to their mouth. And so they were sitting amongst plenty, and they were starving. And that's how I was when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was amongst plenty, and I was starving. And they took him to a room marked heaven, and in that room was the same scene, tables and tables and tables of food, as much food as you could ever imagine, any kind of food you'd ever want. 
And the people in that room had those spoons tied to their hands too and the spoons were just a little bit too long and they couldn't quite get the food to their mouth. But the people in that room were full and they were happy and they were content. And the reason was is that one man was taking a spoonful of food and feeding the man across the table. And he was taking a spoonful of food and feeding the person next to him and she was feeding somebody else. And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous works for me. I don't have my own answers. I have to come here and I have to let you feed me. And if I'm lucky, every once in a while I get to give a spoonful of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to another alcoholic. And you don't have to have 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or one year. If you have one day, you have something to feed to the man or woman sitting next to you. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to continue to choose to recover. I don't have it. Cowards drink and use. I did that on a daily basis for 13 years. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to continue to choose to recover, and I don't have it. But I come here, and at the end of the meeting, the person on my right will give me a little strength, and the person on my left will give me a little courage. And you give me the courage and strength that I need to continue to choose to recover. If you have one day, you have courage to give to the person on your right, and you have strength to give to the person on your left. When I was four days sober, an old man told me if I didn't drink, I wouldn't get drunk. And if I didn't get drunk, my life would get different, and he didn't lie to me. And I end with this, because I always end with it, because it's been my experience. And I pray, God, it's your experience. It's a line in Chapter 5 that says, There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Thank you.